haven't got a Sunday service, but um, so there are some um, worksheets at the back if you fancy going back there and doing something, or you can just go and, and chill out and play with the toys where I'll be. Um, Roland, <laughs> please come. Um, I'll pray for you before you speak. This is um, Roland Work. You're from Amesbury Baptist, I believe. Winchester, yeah, I knew, I, I, know, I do all my research. <laughs> and and um, uh, we'll pray for you now. Dear Lord, we thank you for Roland coming here this morning. And we thank you that you have put on his heart a word to speak to us. And we pray that you will speak to every one of us this morning. Amen. Thank you very much for your welcome. Um, I think I've preached here a couple of times before. I was looking at my records, and I think the last time I was here was actually 2019. And I was a bit uh, nonplussed when I came upstairs because um, uh, last time I was here, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the front of the church was actually over there. And you sort of had a wide church with not much depth. Now you've got a lot of depth, and uh, you're all swathed in sort of uh, side by side. But... Um, Yes, I, I come from Winchester. I um, actually grew up in Salisbury, so I know the area very well. And uh, I was um, so baptised and uh, at Salisbury Baptist Church. Uh, I know you won't hold that against me, but um, and uh, so I went into uh, went away to university and uh, um, went to Spurgeon's College for training for the ministry. Did eight years as pastor of uh, quite a large Baptist church um, in London. And, uh, but most of my ministry has actually been spent um, in, the, in the Royal Navy as a chaplain. So um, I did uh, 26 years, actually, as a Royal Navy chaplain, signed up for four. I don't know where the other 22 came from, but they just kept extending me and extending me um, and uh, did, uh, did, did 26 years. And then when I got to 60, which is the absolute upper age retirement for chaplains in the Royal Navy, Chaplain Beak said, uh, would you fancy transferring over to the reserves? So um, I've been a reservist chaplain for the last six and a half years, and I actually retire from the reserves on, on July the 3rd. And uh, funnily enough, although I've declined it, I did get a phone call from my commanding officer last week. You wouldn't fancy staying on for a bit longer, would you? <laughs> um, but, um, uh, you know, it's uh, 66, nearly 67, and the average age of the Navy is 22. You know, I'm beginning to feel um, a little bit uh, sort of elderly compared to the lads and lasses that we look after. So um, I'm coming to the end, and that, that's opening up a sort of a new chapter uh, for me. Um, and uh, Baptist Union are always very keen to uh, use, you know, spare pair of hands. So I'm actually helping out at a church on the Isle of Wight, which is quite logistically challenging, living in Winchester. Um, and it's a small church at Sandown. They haven't got a minister, so I go over there once a month and uh, help them with pulpit supply and also chair their uh, deacons and uh, church, church meeting. I think I'm going to run them dry on travelling expenses, actually. But... Um, so we're, we're trying to look at, um, they've always had a full-time minister, but sadly, you know, things have dwindled a little bit, and they can't afford a full-time minister now. So I'm trying to help them look at other ways of, of doing ministry, really, besides having a, a full-time full minister. That's quite a challenge, really, um, but um, uh, uh, we're, we're sort of praying very much that the Lord will show us the, the way forward. 
Now, um, I've got uh, four grandchildren, and uh, on Friday, um, I was in London, and uh, we went, uh, we took our grandson uh, to, to Greenwich. And uh, so we caught the train to Waterloo and went up, uh, went up the river on one of, those, um, uh, one of those river taxis, and we got out at Greenwich. And uh, while we were at Greenwich, um, we went um, into the uh, observatory up on the hill, and uh, it just so happened that the planet, they've got a planetarium there. So, um, so we, we um, my wife wasn't feeling better, so she went off for a walk to see the flowers and all that sort of stuff. And uh, my grandson and I went into the planetarium. And the particular show was um, uh, our neighbors in the universe. And um, it, they showed us all sorts of things. But one of the things that really emphasized it, it, itself upon me was the sheer size of, uh, of just our own galaxy, the Milky Way. And um, if, if you go out into the countryside, probably not too far from Wilton, actually, where there's not light pollution, and you look out on a clear night sky, you can see that Milky Way, um, extraordinarily large, with um, millions, if not billions and billions of stars. And uh, that's just our own galaxy, the Milky Way. So we can have the first slide up, please. And uh, so that number two slide. And uh, that, um, anybody know what that is? Well, that's actually Andromeda, which is the next galaxy to us. So um, in our universe, there are many different galaxies. We just belong to the Milky Way, and uh, that, that's the next galaxy to us, uh, the, the Andromeda. And, and uh, it's a big universe out there, isn't it? It's not just um, our galaxy. There's other galaxies out there. It, it, it's, a huge, it's a huge universe out there. And so I've called the title of uh, today's sermon A, a, a Big World. Um, and, uh, but if we just actually scale it right down and just look at our own world, it, it's a big planet with lots of variations and, uh, and diversity. And in the planetarium, we were reminded that we often spent a little bit of time looking at the moon. And we obviously see the moon from the Earth. And some people, if they're keen photographers, take photographs of the moon from the Earth. But a few privileged people, just 12 of them, uh, six flights have actually landed on the moon, and so they've been in the position of seeing the Earth from the moon. So if we can have the next slide, please. And uh, we, we're not often in that position. We see the moon from the Earth, but that is the Earth from the moon. And uh, one of the uh, 12 astronauts uh, took, took that photograph. And uh, it's just a reminder to us that that, that sort of vast outer space there surrounding and this is just our own universe, the, the, this is just our own galaxy, the Milky Way, and there are these other galaxies as well. It, it's a huge universe, but actually just the Earth alone, it's a big world um, out there. It's a big world in a big universe. Now, um, obviously, if you're looking at that, that's a bit three-dimensional, and um, to be honest, as Christians, we can be a bit one-dimensional or, or two-dimensional, I'm challenging you this morning to be three-dimensional, to look in, in three directions. So um, if we could have our first slide, please. So it's a big world, and the first thing that I'm challenging you to do from Acts chapter 1 is to look inwards, uh, look inwards. Um, it's probably a bit odd to have this because I'm going to be challenging you to sort of 
look outside ourselves, but firstly, to look inwards. Now, as we were reminded earlier um, in the all-age uh, sort of messi-ethics talk, um, that um, uh, Thursday was Ascension Day. And uh, those of you from an Anglican or Catholic background, will, will that, that will be imprinted upon you. It's not really a sort of a free church thing, especially as Ascension Day is always on a Thursday. But um, Ascension Day was Thursday, and so I suppose today is really Ascension Sunday, and that's really why I've chosen Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to uh, 11. And it's worth taking a few moments to sort of think of the chronology of what happens. We, we have at the end of the Gospels, we have the crucifixion of Jesus, and then we have the resurrection of Jesus three days later, and then there are these... Um, well, I'm sure it's symbolic, but we've got the 40 days um, while well, Jesus remains on earth after the resurrection. And, and Luke tells us clearly that it's 40 days. Now, clearly, you know, with the 40 years in the wilderness and, and, and uh, Jesus put 40 days um, uh, fasting and 40 is quite symbolic. But Jesus stayed on earth for another 40 days. And then we have the ascension of Jesus in verses 9 to 11. And then in Acts chapter 2, we have the church receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you like, um, in Anglican and Catholic churches especially, we have this sort of chronology of crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and Holy Spirit. And we might ask, well, why did Jesus stay on earth when he rose from the dead? Why didn't he ascend straight into heaven? Why did he stay on for another 40 days. And Luke tells us clearly um, that, that he used the 40 days to give convincing proof to the disciples that he actually was alive. Um, and uh, he knew that they were sort of frail human beings. Uh, we all know about doubting Thomas and all that sort of thing. But I guess that there were other disciples as well who weren't, qu weren't quite sure what was going on. So Jesus stayed uh, to give further teaching about the kingdom of God and to give convincing proofs that he was alive. And uh, there are various um, narratives um, in the Gospels, you know, the road to Emmaus, uh, Jesus on the beach, you know, where he confronts Peter. And, and there are a number, in 1 Corinthians, we're told there are a number of occasions when Jesus appeared to his followers to show that he truly was um, alive. I mean, let's face it. If you are ordinary fishermen, if you're ordinary people, and you've been given a task to go and evangelize the whole of the world, then that's quite a big task to do. And clearly, you want to know that you're doing something that's really worthwhile. So Jesus stayed on for another 40 days to show clearly, I, probably with the nail prints in his hands, that he really was alive. And so that this was a message really worth telling to the Mediterranean world. It was a, a window of opportunity, if you like, for Jesus to make sure that the disciples really knew what their task would be in the days ahead and to gently move them in the right uh, direction. Um, just think of what was, there was Peter racked with guilt. I will go with you all the way. And yet when Jesus really needed him, he even swore and blasphemed that he didn't know who Jesus was. There was James and John falling asleep when Jesus really needed them for sort of help and support and encouragement. 
Um, so um, three dimensions, and the first one is look inwards. And I simply challenge us to look inwardly at ourselves. Are we secure in our faith? Do we have a quiet, not arrogant, but do we have a quiet confidence in our calling and what we're trying to do? And Jesus, it's, uh, it's Luke, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus not only gave convincing proofs that he was alive, but he spoke about the kingdom of God. And uh, we talk a lot about church, but what about the kingdom of God? And, uh, of course, we're coming up to the Platinum Jubilee, and it's very interesting looking at world leaders. So I suppose you could say we have um, uh, politicians, and um, some politicians have a lot of power, but to be blunt, they don't have a lot of authority. Um, our queen uh, probably doesn't have a lot of power in the sense it's all been delegated over the years to politicians, but she has a tremendous amount of authority. But we actually serve the king of kings and lord of lords who has power and authority. And uh, we call him the king of kings and lord of lords, and we say it in our prayers, but is it real in our lives? Does he have power and authority over us? Do, do we allow him to rule and reign in our hearts and in every other aspect of our life? Um, in the Navy, um, we had this young lad who started coming along to church services, and he was the most un un unlikely candidate, if you like, because um, uh, there were quite a few sort of, uh, you know, he'd left home, and he was sort of, I suppose, kicking over his trophies to a certain extent. But he started coming along to church and taking an interest in the Christian faith, and he asked about being um, baptised, and I was very pleased about that. And um, his parents phoned me up because they were very alarmed by the sort of the drift that was taking place in their son's life. And I remember his father saying to me, um, I don't mind my son becoming a Christian as long as he doesn't change. And, um, <laughs> and um, that, that was quite an interesting uh, one um, but because if you become a Christian, if we subject ourselves to the rule and reign of Christ in our lives, it's bound to change us because we're going to be challenged about our behavior, about the things we do. Um, becoming a Christian is not just that sort of, um, uh, sort of Sunday thing. It's actually going to take over our whole lives. And it, for some people, there may need to be more changes than others, but there is going to be um, a, a change. Certain behavior is unacceptable. Uh, Christian life isn't about do's and don'ts, but if we take it seriously, then there are some things which are just not right and there needs to be that change uh, in us. So the first thing I'm going to say is um, Jesus spoke about the kingdom. Is the kingdom living in you? Is Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords in your life? Are you allowing Jesus to rule and reign in your hearts, in your minds, in your speech, in everything you do? So the first thing is to look inwards. Uh, next slide, please. The second one is to look outwards, um, to return to sort of astronomy again. Um, when uh, NASA put the first man into orbit around the Earth, the astronauts insisted on having a window in the capsule. And NASA said it would be dangerous, but the astronauts prevailed. And on that first historic journey, they saw the Earth from a new perspective. One of them said, it's a big, big world. And that's where I've got my uh, sort of title from. And sometimes, in the way that the astronauts looked at the world and saw it, uh, looked at the Earth and saw it from a new perspective, uh, sometimes 
we need to think as Christians of God's kingdom and the church from a new perspective. Because look at the disciples in Acts chapter 1. They were still thinking of the kingdom in terms of Israel. And I know there is a special place for Israel in, in sort of God's uh, economy, but um, th they were just thinking purely in terms of Israel. And in the early church, there was quite a lot of argy-bargy going on where some people said that you have to be Jews and the Jews become Christians. And others said, no, it's for people outside as well. It's for the Gentiles. Uh, the church is the new Israel. And, and so there was a sort of a bit of an argument, and it all comes to a head. In Acts, chapter, in Acts chapter 15, Jesus challenges the disciples here in their narrow nationalistic thinking and tells them that although they may well start in Jerusalem, they have to go out into Judea, they have to go into Samaria, and then they have to go to the ends of the earth. Um, just think about it, if you're a fisherman or you've never traveled outside um, of your own country, and you're now being challenged to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And for them, that would have been the Mediterranean world. Um, and we know the story of Acts, how the church did indeed spread out from Jerusalem right through the whole Mediterranean region. And if on Ascension Day and on Ascension Sunday, we claim that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, then he is indeed king and lord of all the whole earth. And um, it's not just geographically challenging, um, it's culturally demanding because, yes, that's fine, we're in Jerusalem and we're going to go in Judea and we're going to get some like-minded people into the church. No, you've got to go to the Samaritans and you've got to preach the gospel to them. And you will know that through the gospels, there is this antagonism between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, the Jews did it one way, and the Samaritans actually weren't that different, but they, they said that Jerusalem wasn't the center of worship. It was on a hill, and, and, and there's quite a lot of um, uh, antagonism, really, between the Jews and the, uh, uh, and the Samaritans. Um, think of James and John. Jesus couldn't go through a Samaritan village, and a good old James and John, even James and John got it wrong. Uh, Jesus couldn't go through the village, uh, the Samaritan village, because he was on his way to Jerusalem. What is James and John's response? Lord, bring down the nuclear weapon from heaven and let's nu nuke them all, you know. So even good old James and John, you, you know, um, good saints from the past, even they had very negative feelings about the Samaritans. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, when Jesus was telling it, it's the good old one, two, three joke, and one was expect, you know, a priest came by and didn't take any notice, um, a Levite came by, and everybody was expecting, and thirdly, a lay person, but Jesus doesn't say a lay person, he said a Samaritan. And so we, you, you, you can see this coming into the Gospels and into the Acts of the uh, Apostles. So, Jesus is saying you go to Jerusalem, to Judea, into Samaria, and um, that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Because if some of these Samaritans are, are converted, well, they're going to come into the church and bring some funny ways with them, aren't they? And they do things differently to us, and oh my goodness, they're going to have to make some changes. To, well, they're going to have to change, and they're going to have to fit in with the way that we do it. But actually, you, you, again, you can see some of the tension in the early church between 
Samaritan Christians and Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians because there had to be changes if it truly was going to be a proper church reflecting society as a whole. And you know, there are some Samaritans in our world, aren't there? They do things a bit differently to us and it may be that God is challenging us um, to bring in um, a few Samaritans, people who are a little bit different to us. And uh, think of the great banquets. Jesus spoke about the highways and the byways, those in the hedges, in the lanes off the main roads. He spoke about the blind and the lame, the leper, those with mental illnesses, the prostitute, the tax collector, the les miserables, if you like, of society, those on the fringes of society. And the parable says, bring them in, bring them in. And uh, perhaps we, in our solid middle-class Baptist churches are being challenged to reach out beyond Jerusalem and Judea to the Samaritans and those who are a long, long way from our churches. You see, there's a big world out there to be one for Jesus. Some of us may be extrovert and reach out naturally. Some of us may be a bit more reserved and wear our faith quietly on our sleeve. It, it doesn't matter how we do it as long as we're thinking of the church in terms of mission, not maintenance. Someone once said, Jesus called us to be fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. And uh, are we witnesses to those in our families, those in our workplace, in our social gathering, or are we staying in the upper room, safe with those we know? Jesus is saying to those first Christians in Acts chapter 1, there will be Jewish Christians, but there will be Samaritan Christians. There will be other Christians outside of Israel. I told you that I was a, a minister in London, and we had a church that was right on the South Circular Road. And obviously, if you go inside the South Circular Road, you start to get into Brockley and Ucroft and the sort of areas where I drove with my doors locked. Um, uh, it, south of the South Circular Road, or as they called it out there, South Circular Road, um, you, you get out to Leafy, Beckenham and Bromley. And so we were a sort of church on the South Circular Road. And we, we had people from Beckenham and Bromley, and we also had people from Brockley, not many from Newcroft. And it was, I always found it quite amusing, uh, the different accents we had in our church. And if you chose the hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, those from the Newcroft, those from the Brockley sort of area were Price and Bruce, Rice and Fiver. And um, if you um, had the people coming in from Beckenham and Bromley, it's a precinct for his grease and fever. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was quite interesting, the different sort of accents uh, in, the, in, in the congregation. Uh, but one of the things I was really pleased about uh, during my time there, it was a genuine mixed church. There were people from north of the South Circular and there were people from south of the South Circular. And it was a genuine mixed church. And, and, and here we see... Uh, Jesus saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you know, a real proper church is a church of diversity, a church of variety with people from all sorts of backgrounds and from all sorts of classes. I'm quite interested in, in cars and um, I was reading the other day about Henry Ford and his Model T. And uh, when Henry Ford started the first mass production factory, um, it, it, it was a huge success. 
and his idea was that ordinary people could own a car, and he started rolling off these Model T Fords. Uh, what color is it? Any color as long as it's black, you know, because black was the quickest drying paint. And, and, and for a while, it was a great success. But after a while, Henry Ford lost out to General Motors and Chrysler and other firms because he just kept pouring out black Model T Fords. And after a while, people um, didn't want just Model T, black Model T Fords. They wanted other cars, and other producers started producing cars of other varieties and other colors. And um, we often make the mistake of uniformity. That, that's a human thing, uniformity. Yes, we are asked for unity in the church, but it's not uniformity. We are not clones of each other. So first of all, look inwards. Secondly, look outwards. There's a big world out there of variety. And thirdly, um, look upwards. And um, I was um, once, um, uh, I actually uh, missed my ship. And um, I, was, um, I, I was taken over to, the, um, uh, uh, to another ship uh, which didn't have a chaplain. And I was meant to be sort of taken back by um, an inflatable boat. And I was so busy jabbering away and talking to people on the boat, on the, the inflatable boat. So I was late. And the captain of the ship I belonged to wasn't too pleased with me. And um, so they had to get the helicopter out. And the, the helicopter took me up and brought me over. And, and it was quite choppy seas. So they couldn't, um, uh, the, the helicopter couldn't come down on the flight deck. So they had to sort of drop me down. So I was like this. So you're spinning round and round as you come down. And um, because you're spinning round and round, somebody comes out and grabs you and puts their arms around you to stop you spinning. And so I was being lowered, frightened to death, you know, on this strop from this helicopter onto, the, onto our ship, which was sort of going up and down. And as I came down, this big burly chief petty officer came out, put his arms around me, and he said, hello, sir, have you been up to have a word with the governor? <laughs> <laughs> so um, we can often think of sort of God up there, we're here, and hell, hell is below us, if you like, through, through Decker universe. Um, but um, look, look upwards. And uh, we, we sort of think of God up there. But actually, you know, we do need that heavenly dimension. It's not just about 70 or 80 years here on earth if we're lucky and that's it. We're plonked here and told to get on with it. There is that heavenly dimension. And uh, certainly in the Navy, I've had to take a variety of funerals, people with no religion at all, but will ask the padre to take the funeral. And obviously, funerals are very um, committed devout uh, people. And there is quite, uh, I have to say, that there is quite a difference um, of, of people who are devout and, and committed. There is that note of hope. There is that eternal uh, dimension. It's not just about 70 or 80 years here on earth, and, and, and that's it. And uh, the ascension challenges us about that, that sort of otherworldly dimension in our lives, and it gives us hope. Uh, Jesus is alive, and he will return one day. And that's what makes the Christian faith so different. Um, I'd hesitate to describe all the events. I once shared at university with a chap from the Brethren, and he had it all worked out. And this was going to happen, and this was going to happen, and this was going to happen. And I, 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 after a while, I rudely called it slide rule theology. You know, he had it all worked out. Um, I'd hesitate to say too much about times and dates and actual things that are going to happen. But we do have the sure promise that one day in the future, Jesus will return in all his glory and in all his splendor.
and uh, verses 10 to 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And uh, the second coming, it's not so much about times and dates. It's about getting on with our lives so that when Jesus does return, should it be in our lifetime, he will find us going about the master's work. And this was the great, if you like, the great incentive for the missionary societies of the Victorian era. They wanted to go out and evangelize the world so that the world would be evangelized before Jesus would return. Well, I'm going to end with, uh, our time's gone, I'm going to end with, a, with an illustration. So um, can we have the next slide, please? Uh, George Foreman um, was the uh, world uh, heavyweight uh, boxing champion. A uh, picture of him in, in a, a, a lean, young George Foreman and a slightly older, portly uh, George Foreman. And uh, a journalist um, went up to George Foreman and he said, well, it, this was when he was in his fighting prime, and he said, well, George, he said, what must it be like when you go in the ring? It's you and the other man, two people slugging it out, and I suppose the best fighter wins. George Foreman said, son, you've got it all wrong. He said, when I go out into that ring, my opponent is not just fighting me, he's fighting three other people. You see, in my corner, I have a personal coach and trainer. He wakes up with me, he goes to bed with me, he does exercises with me, he knows every single muscle in my body and he makes me into the lean, mean fighting machine that I am. I've got a video analyst. He watches literally hours and hours and hours of film of my opponent. I know my opponent, I know his strengths, I know his weaknesses, what he's like in the early rounds, what he's like in the late rounds. I know my opponent better than my opponent knows himself. And he said, thirdly, I've got a cuts man. He said, on those rare occasions when there is damage, my cuts man is excellent. He can repair those cuts straight away. When my opponent is fighting me, he's not just fighting me, he's fighting my three men in the corner. Now in this passage, we've got Father, mentions the Son, it mentions the Holy Spirit. And if we look inwards, outwards and upwards, as we live out our discipleship, as we make our pilgrimage and try to win a lost world for Jesus, we don't do it all on our own. We've got three great persons in the corner with us. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. A Father who loves us and provides for us. A Holy Spirit who indwells within us. And a Saviour who loved us. Rose again from the dead. Is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. And one day will come again in all his glory and in all his splendour. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, sing as our closing hymn, Jesus is King and I will extol him.